Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. And so Acts chapter 19 is where we'll be as we continue our study and our following along uh, with the Apostle Paul as he is on his missionary journey. At this point, he's in his third missionary journey. Now, if you remember from last week, uh, Apollos was the one who had finally sort of got some things figured out. Remember, he was a mighty preacher. He got some things figured out. And now Apollos is in Corinth and they almost cross paths in a way. But Paul is now headed to Ephesus. Uh, but Apollos is in Corinth and he is now, as scripture tells us, he's watering the seed of the word uh, that uh, Paul had planted there in that city. And so we're in Acts chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number one. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And so uh, Ephesus was a place, I want you to remember, was a place that Paul had desired to go to. It was one of the places that he had said, I want to go, but God, remember, through the power of the Holy Spirit, had said, I don't want you to go there right now. And so the Spirit had resisted him and said, No, we're not to go to Ephesus. Instead, he ended up going to Macedonia and uh, seeing all of the great things that happened there. But now he's on his way to Ephesus, a city that he really, really desired uh, to go on. And he made his way from uh, Antioch, which was in uh, Antioch of Syria. Remember, he had gone from Corinth. He had gone down into Jerusalem. He'd gone north into Antioch. And now he made this trip uh, all the way over there to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an interesting city. And I want to give you a little bit of background of the city so we understand today's title is the gospel to Ephesus. And so it's the first time that it's going there and a church is established. But Ephesus, as you can see here in the next slide, uh, is a a place surrounded uh, or kind of at the the left-hand side, west-hand side of what was called Asia Minor at the time. And Ephesus was a major city. It was a uh, very major city in the Roman Empire, and it really was the hub or the main city for the whole eastern side of the Roman Empire at that time in this area that they called uh, Asia Minor. It for the time, was considered a big city. Now, for us today, we think of a big city. We think of, you know, Mexico City. I think it's like 50 million people or something. You know, New York City is 18 or 19 million. I'm probably way off of my numbers, but a lot of millions. And, uh, and I mean, it's a, they're big places. But for that day, this city was about 250 to 300,000 people. And that was a major, major city in that day. Second only to Rome as far as population is concerned. Now, of course, Ephesus was known uh, by, uh, by the people in the region it was a place of trade. Uh, It was positioned midway between two continents and two different cultures, literally where East met West and those came together. And it was an incredible, incredible place that was full of a lot of unique things. It was a a place of business, of course. It was a place of art, uh, but it was also known as a place for pagan idolatry. What do you know, right? Every city that we go to has got some weird idolatry stuff going on with it. And one of the things that they were known for was the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Uh, This is not an original photo. This is a reproduction. Uh, But it was an incredible, incredible place. It was very, very unique, this temple to Artemis. It was the largest Greek temple that was ever constructed. It was some uh, 418 feet by 239 feet. And it's so interesting. They built this on a marsh and they built the temple on a foundation of charcoal and skins. 
Animal skins, in case you were worried. Animal skins. And uh, between the two, the reason they did it is it was in a region that had a lot of earthquakes at the time. So it was almost like a floating foundation. I mean, it was ingenious what they were coming up with. And, uh, and, and this place, this temple was built on that. And uh, really, it was covered in gold. It was covered in, in, there was ivory everywhere. And it really was an illustration to the world of the wealth and the opulence of the city of Ephesus. It was known at the time and known even still today as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, this temple to Artemis. Now, inside the temple, though, was where a lot of the weird stuff happened. And the reason was because inside there was an idol, and the idol was to Diana or Artemis. Now, if you were to research Artemis, there was a couple of different ones. The one that most people think of is the idea of Diana the beauty, which was the Greek god, and she was very beautiful and, and looked like a human, but the one that was in this temple was not that one. This one was a wooden idol, and uh, it it was, it was rather vulgar because she was considered the goddess of fertility. And the idol was of this, and I didn't bring a, I didn't show a, a picture of it here, was basically of a woman with like a ton of breasts all over her, exposed and hanging out. That was the idol that was there. And it was the representation of fertility and of course, temple prostitution, all that went along with this. And a lot of really, really bad things happen within this temple and outside of this temple and in the city, much like the city of Corinth. But like I mentioned as well, Ephesus was a trade city. Uh, it was also a tourist location, primarily because of this temple. And so people would come and they wanted to be there. And like when my wife and I went to Rome uh, about five years ago uh, for our anniversary, we were there. And everywhere you go in Rome, there's little tiny uh, things of the, the Colosseum, you know, and there's little tiny things of like uh, Roman centurions. And, and so everywhere you go, in the same way it was like that in Ephesus, where silversmiths were very well known there. And everywhere you went, you could buy little silver statues. Uh, of, of Artemis or a silver statue of the temple there. And so a lot of people came and we're going to, you say, why are you bringing up silversmiths and silver? We're going to talk about that next week, but it's good for us to so, sort of know with the foundation of what we're laying here. So there was a lot of money being made in tourism. There was a lot of money being made in trade. It was a very well, uh, 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 a very expensive and a very um, uh, opulent place to live. And this is where the Apostle Paul is going to share the gospel. And guess what? It's not going to be easy. And you're like, surprise me, right? Every place that he goes at this point is difficult for the gospel to take root. But here we see Paul going, and later on he wrote about the battle that he was about to face. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus later on, and he said, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He said later on that, listen, there's a spiritual battle. There's, uh, we're not just fighting a physical thing. There's a spiritual battle that's going on there in Ephesus. Also in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 16, he said, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost for a great door and effectual is open unto me. That means it's an open, it's, it's something that, that they're ready to hear the word of God and there be many adversaries. You see that? He says, it's, it's this great door. God's going to do something here, but there's going to be a lot of adversity. And I just got to tell you, a great thing to know about the Christian life is that not every open door from the Lord is going to be smooth and, and pure without any issues. We recognize as Christians that there are adversaries. We know that anything that uh, oftentimes when God works in a Christian's life and maybe gives them an opportunity for service or, or even just a, a regular opportunity, you're like, man, God clearly made this uh, for me. God just made the path clear. There's going to be some adversity that comes into your life. And so it was this city full of spiritual darkness that Paul came to, but he was not put off. I want you to think here. He was not, he did not come to the city 
all like, oh man, that's a really rough place. I was telling the, the first service, I have a, I have a friend of mine, uh, somebody I know who's in ministry and and uh, one time uh, they said to me, they're like, you know, I don't know that I could ever minister uh, in a city like Vancouver, like a big city that just has so much, as the way he put it, just wicked. You know, that's what he said. Vancouver is such a wicked city, you know. And uh, it is, okay, it is. Vancouver is, I would say all cities are because if they're full of sinful men, right? Uh, but he's like, I couldn't, and, and he's in a different part of the United States. They call it the, the Bible Belt. You've probably heard of that. And he's right on the gemstone of the Bible Belt buckle. It's right where he's at, you know. I mean, it's right in the middle churches everywhere. I think in his town, he's got something like, oh, like 400 Baptist churches or something just in his town, you know, a small town. And uh, it's, it's crazy. And, uh, and, and he said, I don't know if I could ever minister in a big city because of the wickedness of it. But you know, and then I, and when he said that, I, I mean, I was like, hey, God's called you to where he's called you and God's called me to where he's called me. And yes, it, it, Vancouver is not a, not a great place for Christianity, but the power of the gospel can still work here and God can work here. And often the gospel light shines the brightest in the darkest places. And Paul was doing that. He was going to Ephesus, a place where really no other Christian witness was. And he went there and he, and he, and he saw it as a city in bondage that desperately needed the power of the gospel. So the first 20 verses we're going to cover today in Acts chapter 19, what we see is Paul following God's direction to go to Ephesus and bring the gospel. And what we're going to see is four different unique events that take place right when he gets there. Normally, when Paul goes to a city, it's like chaos immediately, right? So we're going to look at four different events that take place, some that directly involve him, one that doesn't directly involve him. But what we're going to be reminded about today in our message is how God's power supersedes the wickedness and the strength of man. As well, we're going to see how God's power will overcome Satan's power as well. And the fact that God is the one in control and God is the one who makes a difference. And the same power that was available to Paul and the believers there in Ephesus is the same power that's available to us today as Christians right here in Vancouver. So as Paul heads in Ephesus, what we're going to see, four different things happen. The first thing that we see today in the passage is we see truth for the followers. You can write that down. Point number one today, we see truth for the followers. Look at verse number uh, two. So uh, Paul had come along, or sorry, verse one and two again. It says he came to pass, so Paul came to Ephesus. Look at the second part of the verse though. He says, and finding certain disciples. So right away we know that he discovers some people who are considered to be disciples, okay? And he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He asked them that question. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now this is interesting. Paul arrives here and he finds some people that claim to be disciples. He says, well, have you received the Holy Ghost? And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? We, we, we have not received the Holy Ghost. Now, I just want to put this out there at the very beginning. I, I do believe that these guys had heard about the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. But as yet, they had not experienced it. They had not experienced the difference that happens when a person uh, turns completely in faith to Jesus Christ. And I don't know what it was about them that caused, caused Paul to ask that question, you know? I don't know what it was if they were like, you know, sometimes you witness to people and I've witnessed to people before and shared my faith. They're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know? And they're like, yeah, I've, I've done this and I've done the sacraments and, and I've, you know, and I've done, and then, and then in my heart, I'm like, okay, they may not truly be saved because they're putting their trust in this, you know? Oh yeah, that people tell me, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven for sure. I'm, I'm a Christian. I was baptized as a baby. And I mean, I'm on lock for heaven, you know, and that's uh, that. And, and that to me is sort of like a, a warning sign. Like, okay, maybe they don't truly understand the gospel if they're trusting in, in that. And that's what I think happened here with Paul. Uh, he maybe was teaching in the synagogue as we see here in a minute. He was teaching and they came to him and, oh yeah, we've heard about the Messiah. We believe in the Messiah, but yet they were not truly saved. And Paul immediately asked them about the Holy Spirit because Paul, he understood that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you truly are not a saved individual. 
right? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. See, when we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit at that moment of salvation, and it is a seal on our life. It is what gives us eternal security. You know, some people say like, I don't know, I did a bad thing and maybe I'm not saved anymore. Listen, there's no sin that you can do upon salvation that's going to remove the Holy Spirit from your life. And so if you're saved, you have that seal of promise and that's something you can hold on to. It is God who is keeping you saved, not yourself. Sometimes new Christians struggle with that and they're like, you know, they, they sin or they fall, fall back into something and they're like, I'm not saved anymore. Listen, you're not the one doing the saving. If it was you doing the saving, then yes, you could lose it for sure. But you'd also be working your whole life and striving to earn your salvation back. Okay. And so it's the spirit that seals us. Romans 8 verse 9, which Romans 8 is a great passage on the Holy Spirit. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's a clear marker. If a person does not have the Holy Spirit of God within them, that clear defining marker of, of salvation, then they are not saved. They are not saved. But yet we see Paul here come to these guys and he says to them, have you heard about it? There was something about him he wasn't sure about. Well, they cleared it up in verse number three. Look at that, verse, uh, uh, Acts 19, verse three. And he said unto them, unto what then were ye baptized? And what did they say? Unto who? John's baptism. Now we heard about that last week, didn't we? With Apollos. So they said, well, we've been baptized. They said, we're believers and we've been baptized. Well, whose baptism? Well, John's baptism. Then said Paul, verily, uh, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So Paul clears it up. He says, hey, that baptism that you uh, followed, uh, the baptism that you, were, that you followed was a baptism of, uh, of repentance, okay? A baptism of repentance, not the baptism of Christ showing that you had received Jesus Christ. Well, look at their response. And when they heard this in verse number five, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if I have this verse up here, do we? I don't think we have this verse. That's okay. We do? Oh, look at that. That's three, four. All right, let's go five through seven. Let's do that one. I missed a slide, and so they're like doing this cool stuff up there. Look at that. All right, okay. <laughs> I like it. On the fly. We should do this every week, Lex. It's on the fly. You just got to figure out what I'm going to say, and I like it. Okay, that's great. Verses five through seven, perfect. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they heard about the Spirit. They heard about Jesus Christ. They heard the Messiah had come, that he had died, that he had risen again from the dead. And it says that they were baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues as languages and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. What do you know? The 12 disciples there in Ephesus. Interesting. Well, they heard the truth about Christ. They believed, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting thought. This is the only place that we see uh, disciples of John being rebaptized again. In most, most other cases, what we notice is that they simply understand the peace has already come. Does that make sense? Like, okay, oh, he has come. He has risen from the dead and, and they move on. But in this case, they're rebaptized, which tells us there was probably a little bit more messed up in their theology than maybe that's just given to us here uh, in the passage. They really were missing some major, and maybe it's because they heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who changed it a little bit and then told somebody else. We don't really know, but these men were rebaptized then. And then at that moment of 
of baptism, it says that when they came out or when, after it was over, Paul laid his hands on them and they spake with tongues and they prophesied. Now, this is something that we don't see very much in the word of God, but in the book of Acts, we do see it. And we've seen it four times already. First time that we saw people speaking in tongues, which tongues means languages. So they would speak and the people there would understand them in their own language. So whatever, if they were there and they spoke Tagalog, they'd understand it in Tagalog. If they spoke Mandarin, they'd understand it in Mandarin or whatever ancient languages that were there. They would understand it in their language. It means languages, okay? It's not some sort of heavenly gibberish. And so they would speak in tongues. It says that they spoke in tongues. That was an evidence to them that the Holy Spirit had in fact come. Now, four times we see in the book of Acts where that happens. First of all, we see it in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost. You remember that? And the Holy Spirit came upon the believing Jews and they spoke in tongues at that moment. And everybody's like, "Woo, this is amazing. The second time we see it is in Samaria when Peter, I'm sorry, when Philip brings the gospel to the Samaritans, remember this people that the Jews resisted, and they accepted Christ, and he gave, he put his hands on them, and they had the Holy Ghost, and they spake in tongues, which was an evidence that, okay, Samaritans can be saved. Because remember, the Jews thought it was just about them, right? All right we're the only ones. All right, so the Samaritans could get saved. And then later on, Peter, if you remember, in Cornelius's house, he gave the gospel, the Gentiles were saved, and the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spoke in tongues, and it's like, okay, now Gentiles can be saved. And the Jews are like, minds are totally blown. Samaritans? Uh, Jews? What are you talking about? This is the fourth and the final time that we see this evidence in Scripture. Remember, the book of Acts is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. That's a good thing to remember when you read the book of Acts, okay? It is Luke describing what is happening. And there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Acts that after Paul, who was like the final apostle, he was an apostle uh, that was a special anointing given to him by God. After he's gone, we don't see this stuff happening anymore. We see it sort of established into what we believe we have today, which is the church of Christ today, okay? So the, the spirit comes upon those disciples, the ones who had uh, followed after John's baptism and then they were baptized again. And, and I don't know, to me, it's sort of like an anointing or, or just sort of an emphasis that, hey, you know what? Uh, the John, the people who followed after John, he was the one preparing the way and they did believe in the Messiah and now they've kind of got everything figured out. So I don't know if that makes sense to you. It's just sort of another like uh, Paul showing like, yes, this is happening. But what I notice here is that they not only spoke with tongues, but they prophesied as well. And that's giving glory to God. That's pointing, that's not foretelling the future, that's presenting presenting the truth of the word of God that we have right now. And that's what they did. They praised God. And that's, to me, another evidence of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is only going to give praise to Jesus. It's not going to give praise to a man, you know? And so they began to prophesy and give God praise and lift him up. And, and they would have been flooded, of course, with assurance and security of their salvation. Romans 8.16 tells us that the Spirit itself uh, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God speaks with our spirit. And it gives evidence to us that we are the sons of God. And so these 12 men uh, here were given the truth truth, their lives were changed forever, and they went on, I believe, to great amounts of service for the Lord Jesus Christ there in Ephesus. Many believe they were the founding uh, group, them and their families, the founding group of the church there in Ephesus. And the difference, I want you to notice, the difference that the truth can make in the heart of a religious person, a person who thinks they have it all figured out. And to me, that's the great application from this little story that's given to us here. And that is, there are a lot of people and there are people out there today who say they are Christians. They say, I, yes, I'm a believer. And they'll even say, I believe, I believe. And it's a, it's a head knowledge that they possess. I believe there's even people within our churches today, good gospel preaching churches. There are people that have all of the head knowledge in their, in their head of who Jesus is. And they may even say yes, but they truly are not born again. That is why we need to continue to preach the gospel to them. 
That's why I know sometimes I feel like, man, I give the gospel almost every week. You know, I try to. I try to give the gospel every week. Why do I do that? Well, because I know, first of all, we have kids in our church, right, that maybe are not saved and they need to hear the gospel. They need to understand it before they turn to Christ. But I also realize there may be some who come, who visit, or maybe some that are even here. I don't know who come to, come to church and they believe and they think that they are Christians and then they get saved. Guess what? We've seen that happen time and time again here at our church where people come and they have maybe a religious background and maybe they fell away for a while or whatever, but they're here. And then when they hear the gospel, they're like, oh, now I understand it. And they get saved. And that's a wonderful thing. The gospel has power and we need to continually be preaching and giving the gospel. So he gives those followers there some truth. Uh, But secondly, we see here, Paul gives some teaching to the faithful. Paul gives some teaching for the faithful. Look at verse number eight. And he went into the synagogue and he spake boldly for the space of three months. That's a big deal. For Paul to be in a synagogue for three months and not get shot or punched, you know, that's a really big deal. And, he, and here, uh, they didn't have guns. You know what I mean. Uh, uh, get attacked. Look at this. Look what he did, though, for three months. He was disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Man, I love this. Even though Paul had said, I'm done with the Jews, he still had a heart to minister to them. And so he went to the synagogue and for three months he spoke to them. Now, this is interesting because if you remember, Paul did make a little stop off in Ephesus a little while ago. And while he was there, he taught in the synagogue and they begged him to stay. I don't know if you remember that. They said, please, Paul, stay. And he said, no, 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 I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to fulfill my vow. Well, now he comes back. And I believe that's why he was able to stay for three months. And so he ministered to them. He disputed with them. That's the idea of asking them questions or having them ask him questions and sort of a back and forth discussion discussion as he revealed to them the kingdom of God. He revealed to them from the scriptures uh, who the Messiah was. Well, soon enough, though, the Jews had enough. (laughs) There's always somebody, right? Always somebody who's not happy with what Paul's doing. And so that's what we see in verse number nine. It says, but when divers were hard, and the word divers there, we, you remember it from the book of James, divers temptations. Divers is a word uh, that just means a various amounts. It's kind of, it's sort of like an ethereal word. It's like, well, it's just like, you know, random, random, not random, but just a few. Uh, and it doesn't give us any specifics as to who they were, or what their names were, but various people got upset. They, or as it says here in the passage, they were hardened and believed not. So they heard, but they're like, you know what? We're not going to believe it. Look what they did though. They spake evil of that way. Remember, it was called the way at the time. I think that's cool. The way. That's what the Christians were called. The way. Uh, before they were called Christians. And then um, it says here, they spake evil of the way before the multitude. So large groups of people. And he, that's Paul, departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Whenever the gospels preached, there will be resistance. And these Jews became hardened to it and they began to speak evil of the way. And so Paul decided, listen, we're going to separate ourselves from those that are resisting, those that are hardened, those that are slandering us. And we're going to remove ourselves and we're going to go and we're going to find our own place that we can teach with freedom. This is a great thought. I just want you to get out of this passage. Sometimes, Sometimes you need to remove yourself from negative people. <laughs> we call them toxic people. Sometimes you need to remove yourself from situations that are constantly constantly attacking you and constantly going after you. Sometimes you need to do that in your life. And I think that's a, a principle that we see here. Paul could have stayed there and just fought him. You know, we've been like, wow, that was awesome, Paul. You know, just ripped on him. But at a point, he's like, listen, they're not, they're not going to believe. They're hardened toward the gospel. And he, and he removed him. And to protect the younger believers, he removed himself from there. And it says that he went to and found a place in the school of Tyrannus. That is not 
Rex later on, just so you know. That was a guy, and uh, he had a school there in Ephesus, and what he did is he rented rooms there, and he taught the believers for the next two years. Now, this is interesting. You say, well, how did he pull this off? How did he pull this off? I want you, this is, this is so cool. I mean, I don't know if it's cool, but I, I think it's cool. So in Ephesus, in that day, they carried a very different work week than we do. There was not like a nine to five kind of a thing, you know, and, and uh, they had their own situation. And the way that they would do it is that they, the work day there would start at 7 a.m. All right, not too bad, right? And they would work till 11 a.m. And then from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., they would take a siesta. They'd take a break. Like, you know, they go and shop or nap or eat or whatever from 11 to 4. I mean, that's great, right? Like, <laughs> come on. And then they go back to work, though, and they'd work until about 9.30 was kind of the end of the work day. And that's the way that they operated as a culture and as a city at that time. And, I mean, I don't know if I like to work until 9.30, but I like the five-hour break in the middle of the day, you know? Uh, that would, Some of us would only work, you know, <laughs> four or five hours a day if that was the case. But that's how they, they did it. And so how we understand Paul did this then is that it was during that break time when everything else would be closed that he was able to rent uh, a space in the school of Tyrannus and there he would teach and preach to these people. At the same time, he was able to work his day job as a tent maker. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla had come with him to Ephesus, and we would have understood them, the kind of people they were, to start up a business. Paul would have been working, and so he would have worked from 7 to 11. He would have been teaching during that midday time, and he would have gone back to work, making tents or making leather goods at the end of the day. What it teaches us is Paul's work ethic. Paul's work ethic. Man, think about it, this guy. For two years, for two years, he would get up, he would work, he would go, he would teach. And it was because he was committed to the city of, uh, of Ephesus and he was committed to those believers there. He was preparing them for what was to come. If you notice there at the verse, end of verse 10, it says that they, all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that everyone from that whole region came to Ephesus and, and went, came to the school of Tyrannus and heard. But what it does tell us is that Paul taught those who then went out and planted churches. I mean, the book of Revelation right at the very beginning, it gives us a list of seven churches in Asia that I believe were directly planted from the school of Tyrannus. And they went out to Thyatira and, and other cities. Uh, I'm not remembering all of them right now. So these different cities that were there, Laodicea, and, uh, and they went and they started churches so that the entire region would hear the gospel. And it's all connected back to the apostle Paul willing to serve and work hard and have that kind of work ethic for two full years teaching the people there in Ephesus. But not only was he teaching, not only was the gospel going forth, but there was something supernatural that was happening in the city as well. I want you to see in verse number 11. This is unique. You don't see this anywhere else in scripture. And God wrought, what kind of miracles? Special miracles by the hands of Paul. Here's the special miracle. So that from his body, this is interesting, from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So opposed to regular miracles, there are special miracles that are happening here. Uh, and of course, miracle is a miracle, right? But these special miracles in this specific time, in this specific place, was happening here in Ephesus. And the miracle was that handkerchiefs or aprons of Paul, notice how it said, from his body. Did you see that? From his body were taken, and those that were sick were healed, and those that were possessed were freed from that demon possession. You're like, what is happening here? Now, you got to understand what it means now. First of all, a handkerchief is, is basically a rag or a piece of cloth that you use to wipe your face, not to clean it, to get the sweat off of it. 
I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's like what I have in my pocket right here. Let me see. Everybody looks. It's a paper towel. <laughs> it's not quite, the, not quite the same. But I have it just in case there's a sweat emergency. And, uh, and so Paul, though, this is a rag that Paul would have while he's working. He would be wiping the sweat off of his face and he'd maybe discard it or put it aside or whatever. He'd have it there. The other thing it talks about an apron. That's not like he's flipping pancakes and making cupcakes, right? Like this is an apron uh, that like a work apron, you know, like a leather uh, apron or, or more than likely like a linen, heavy linen apron that he would have worn while he was working. And it tells us that they took those things. I don't know if someone was like, yoink, and like, you know, red. I don't know what happened. They cut it up and sent it all over. I don't know what was going on, but these garments from his body would go out and they were used to heal the sick and cast out demons. And I'm like, what? Like, what is happening? Like I said, it's very, very unique. It's a special thing. It does not happen in scripture. There's only with the Lord and, you know, the lady who touched the hem of his garment. Uh, Peter, oh, by the way, Peter healed some people by his shadow. That was interesting. But these really like interesting sort of one-off type of events take place. And we see here, Paul, these, these, uh, these garments being used. Now, again, like I said, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And there are people, and I just want to warn you about this. There are people out there who take this and they try to make it happen today. Like there are people who sell things like healing hankies. No joke. No joke. You know, I even read about a carpet company that, that they, they lay on the carpets and pray over them. And if you'll install their carpets in your house, you will have a special blessing brought to your home, you know. And, and there's, there's televangelists and people, you know, who sweat in the rags. And like for $20, you can have this piece of cloth. And if you don't spend a lot of time on this, but you can look it up and see it on YouTube, you know, where they, they take a rag, you know, and they, they just put it on somebody's head, you know, and, and, they, and then they, come on. This was a special thing, a special thing that God was doing here. Very, very special. And, and the reason I believe, the reason I believe God allowed this in this time was, I think, maybe twofold. I don't know. One of them is speculation. Here's my speculation. Paul was just so busy. God's like, he didn't have time to go around and, and do miracles. So, you know what? I'm just going to, you know, if somebody gets healed by one of his, his, his sweat rags, great, you know, and God just sort of let it happen. Uh, the other reason I think is because simply this, Ephesus was a very, very uh, uh, mystical and superstitious culture. They were really into magic and the dark arts and all of these, and we'll see that in a minute here, all of these kind of things. And so I think God simply allowed these miracles to happen as sign gifts pointing towards the one who is to come. All of the miracles, church, remember this, all of the miracles that we see in the New Testament were sign gifts. Jesus even said, I do these to you unbelieving Jews, that unbelieving Jews needed a sign gift. They needed a sign to reveal to them who Jesus was. Today, of course, we know that it is the word of God, the completed word of God that we have that reveals him to us. But God allowed these certain moments. And again, it was for a time, this transitional time in scripture where these were given. And I believe God in his mercy and grace to the city of Ephesus allowed these things to happen to proclaim Jesus Christ. Not Paul, but to proclaim Jesus Christ. I really doubt that somebody who was healed by Paul's sweat rag uh, would have, you know, come to Paul and he'd be like, oh yeah, totally, like my sweat, like bottle it and, you know, hand it around. No, no, he would have given praise and they would have heard about Jesus Christ. They would have heard about the word of the Lord and God was magnified in this. And so for us, when it comes to miracles and this thought here, we need to have that balanced viewpoint. We understand that this was for a time. You know, some people today see a miracle in everything, you know? And uh, did you see the rain as it puddled in the front yard? 
it was a miracle of God, you know, and, and uh, they, or, or, you know, they met a new boyfriend or something, a girlfriend, and they're like, it's a miracle, they're, they're miraculous in my life, you know, and, and, and listen, it's great to recognize the Lord in things, but uh, don't be overcome with like seeing a miracle in everything. We know from the book of Proverbs and other scriptures that we as Christians are to seek the will of God from the word of God, right, and we're to pursue him, and we're to under, have wisdom that comes from that, uh, but at the same time, we're not discounting that God can do miracles, right? Psalms tells us that God can do whatever he wants. And I truly believe that. And I'll tell you this, I have seen God do miracles. I truly have. I've seen people uh, healed from diseases, not because I went to them and was like, right? Not because of anything that I did or anyone else did, but because God chose in his sovereignty and they were healed from that. I've seen God do miraculous things in situations that I thought would never be resolved, Things that I thought, well, you know what? There, I do not see any way out of this. And God did a miracle. And guess what? God did it and he chose to do it. And I'm thankful for it. And I'm going to give him praise for it. But I'm not going to try to make it about me. And that's the issue with a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the healing type movements today. They're making it about the person or they're making it about the person who needs to be healed right? Well, your faith isn't enough. That's why you're not healed. Or this person has great faith. Therefore, this thing happened. We need to be very aware, very aware of those things, okay? God moves as God decides to moves, move. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Paul here, this unique thing happened, which is really, really cool that we see here. Very, very interesting. So if I ever try to get you to buy one of my handkerchiefs for $15, run, 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 okay? Because it's just going to smell gross. But in this situation, there was a uniqueness to this that we can appreciate. There's a lot of things in the Word of God that we don't see repeating themselves today, and we can appreciate that uniqueness there. But I don't want us to miss out on the fact of this passage or this section here, how hard Paul worked and how much he dedicated himself to the people. You know, today we honor great athletes who work out, you know, every day, even though they don't feel like it, you know. We honor the, we honor the athlete, you know, who goes out there and plays a game with a hurt back or they're sick or they got a broken foot or whatever. That's hockey, <laughs> a broken foot or missing half their teeth or whatever. They get out there and, man, they play hard. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. But you know what? For us as Christians today, we, we need to be men and women who are involved in the battle of truth, men and women who are willing to, to work hard. Men and women who are willing to go to bed tired because of them serving the Lord, even if we work a full-time job, even though we work and, and have all of these things, we should still be able to uh, be willing to serve and to help other people. And Paul, that's what he did. He made tents. He preached the gospel. He planted churches. He taught new pastors. He led missionary endeavors. He pointed others to the other cities that they could go and start churches in. And we as a, as a church, I think, can really learn from him. We can learn from him. The, 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 the principles of hard work and of just serving the Lord and being willing to be used by God. Well, the gospel is doing a work there in Ephesus. And the truth has been brought to these followers. The faithful that do know Christ have been taught. But there's also something else that we see in this passage here. And we see here terror for the fakes. I'm very proud of my outline this week, just so you know. It just it kind of worked out. So... You'll see after the fourth point. I'm excited. <laughs> You're like, nerd. Okay, it's okay. I'm okay. I'm totally fine being a, a, a Christian nerd. That's all right. Sometimes when you're reading and studying, I'm like looking for a way to outline it, and this just all came together. So truth for the followers, teaching for the faithful, terror for the fakes. Look at verse number 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, you see that? Exorcists took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And then verse number 14, and there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. Do I not have that verse? I don't have that verse up there. 
Oh, yeah, there they are. There you go. One Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. So Paul there is ministering in Ephesus, and we're introduced here to a new group of people, and it clearly says they are Jews who are vagabonds. I mean, these are not great guys. These are not, uh, these are not the kind of people you want to date your daughter. These, are just, these guys are just not really great, and it says they're vagabonds, and it says not only are they vagabonds, but they are exorcists, and they are called the seven sons of Sceva. I mean, to me, that sounds like a bad grunge band name, don't you think? Yeah. Seven Sons of Skiza. And uh, 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 anyway, I, I, so these are these guys and they're exorcists. And, uh, and, and they're just interesting. They, they were the sons of Skiva who his, he claimed that he was a high priest. Whether or not he was, uh, we don't know. But we know that these sons of his were definitely not acting like the Jewish high priest should be acting. And they had turned themselves over and had begun to be Jewish exorcists there in uh, Ephesus. Now, Jewish ex- exorcists were kind of in demand in Ephesus of the day because they had these strange sort of Hebrew incantations and chants, and they would uh, use them, and, and uh, they would provide cures, and they provide blessings all for a price, of course. And another thing that was common for these exorcists or uh, witch doctors, whatever you want to call them in that day, is that they would often invoke the name of others that they had heard do certain things or heard about, and they would invoke that name in order to impress people, you know, to try to show them that, oh, yeah, we're, we're legitimate. And so we see here in the passage that they invoke the name of Jesus. Notice what they said, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. They invoked, invoked both of their names uh, to cash in on the miracles that Paul was doing. That's what I believe. I think they're like, did you hear about the sweat rags and the aprons and all this stuff that's happening? They're like, okay, we're going to use that next time we go in here. So they set themselves up now for a exorcism and they're going to cash out and use the name of Jesus. But look at verse 15 and it says, and the evil spirit answered. So here's what we know. They're in the middle. This story is telling about them about to do an exorcism over a legitimately demon-possessed person. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see elements of that and stories of that. So they're in the house, seven sons of schema. They're all hanging out there. They all have beards, of course. Uh, and, uh, and they're all there and they're around this guy. And they say, we, that means like we cast you out. We send you out over Jesus and the apostle Paul. And then this is what the demon speaks through this guy. I'm not going to try to act like a demon voice, but this is what he says. He says, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are ye? This is what he says to the seven sons, right? I know about Jesus. I know about Paul, but who are ye? In other words, he's saying this, I'm scared of Jesus and I'm scared of Paul, but I am not scared of you guys. He says, man, you guys, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. Look at what happens in verse number 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. And overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) The attempt here to exercise this demon did not go as planned. (laughs) This demon that was in here, it did not go as planned. And this guy with supernatural power overpowered them. But not only did he overpower them, but he took their clothes and he wounded them. I mean, they're bleeding and half naked and they ran out of the house. One pastor said it this way. If when you start a fight, you're wearing pants and when the fight's over, you're no longer wearing pants. You lost. I thought that was great. That's true. Uh, Another author said that these guys should be called the seven streakers of Sceva. I thought that was great. I mean, they were, they went in and they came running out and they're wounded. And this demon, I mean, overtook them. Do you know what this tells us? This tells us that simply knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. 
They knew about him. They were invoking the name of Jesus. They were invoking the name of Paul in this situation here. But this demon-possessed man who had great strength, which we see that in other passages uh, in Luke and in the New Testament where there are other elements of the New Testament where people have this sort of uh, strong uh, strength uh, in them. And he overtakes them, and it's because they were invoking the name of Christ without having a relationship with him. Well, the story, as you can imagine, spread throughout the city, and the name of Jesus became a powerful name and not one to be taken lightly because when it was held up against what Paul had been doing and what these guys were trying to do, there was no, there was no match there. These guys, I believe, were exposed for their falseness in it. Look at verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I'm sure the believers in Ephesus love to tell this story. I mean, I would. <laughs> if I had this in my back pocket, you know, you're at somebody's house, they're like, oh, yeah, that's nothing. Did you hear about the seven sons of Sceva, you know, and uh, what happened there? And it says that the whole city knew the news, and it added credence to the teaching of the way. And you see there at the end of the verse, it says that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Listen, God can be magnified in many different situations. Did you know that? So often we think God is only magnified in the good things that happen in this world. God is only magnified in the wonderful things in my life. But God can be magnified in any situation that you are in. In the battle that you are in right now, the one that you are fighting, the one that you are struggling with, the challenges that you are going through in life, God can be magnified in it if we recognize that he is at work in it. I'm sure when this story happened, everybody's like, man, what, what in the world? <laughs> But then when they compared it to what God was doing elsewhere in the city, God was magnified and he was magnified, made big in that city. And listen for you in the struggle that you're in and the situation that you're going through and the challenges that you have. Listen, God can be magnified in that. Did you know that? He can be magnified even in your struggle, even in your struggle. You know, when a good thing happens, we get that raise, you know, we get that boost or whatever it is, some financial thing, we're like, Christ be magnified. You know, we, we give him, the, we magnify him. I like that song, by the way, Christ be magnified. It's a good song. And, uh, and, you, and you, you point it to him, but then when you're going through a dark valley and you're discouraged and you're depressed and you're, you're struggling in your relationships and you're feeling alone and you're not like connected, you're like, well, where, what do we do? We question where God is in all of this. And then you know what often happens? God brings us out of that, doesn't he? But we don't give him glory for that. Here's the thing, when you're in a deep, dark place and you feel like this is it, like ah, this is the end, the one thing that you can say that I believe is encouraging and it's something that I say to myself is that, listen, if I get out of this, it's all going to be because of God's glory. It's, it's going to be because God is going to work something in me. God is going to teach me. God is going to work in my life in a special way. And then I can give him the glory for it. God can be magnified in any type of situation, whether it's seven guys getting beat up by a demon-possessed man. <laughs> Think about that. God used a demon beating up seven guys to be magnified in a city. <laughs> God can most certainly use your difficult situation or your good situation for his glory and to magnify himself. Because that's what we are here on earth to do is to bring glory to God and magnify his name. And God is at work in a special way, but he's not done yet. So we come to our fourth spot here, our fourth point today, where we see a torching for the faults. I told you I was proud of this outline. I like it. <laughs> torching for the faults. There was some terror for the fakes and now some torching for the faults. Look at verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed. That's a key word there. And showed their deeds. That's also key. 
Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a vivid picture to us right here of confession and of repentance here. Notice how it said that believers came and confessed and they shared their deeds. In other words, they disclosed what they had been doing. Well, what is it that they had been doing? Well, what we see here is that they had been involved in some of the dark arts, if you want to call it that. They had been involved in uh, the, the practices of, of magic and of the occult, definitely. And so what we come to understand is that those that had believed as they grew in their faith, as they developed in the process of sanctification, they recognized that a life that is given to the occult, a life that is uh, 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 pursued in, in, in worshiping uh, after things that are not of God and a life of a Christian are not compatible. And that's what they learned. By the way, that happens in all of us when we get saved. There's some things immediately, I'll tell you this, some things when you get saved immediately, you're like, all right, I can't do that anymore. But there's other things that as God teaches you and as you grow in your faith, that God reveals to you some things that you maybe need to lay aside. And that's what they did. Here for them specifically, we see them bringing the scrolls and the books uh, that described or prescribed their occult rituals. And they had a big bonfire for them. They burned them up. And you might be like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, burning books is bad, right? Yeah, yeah, it is bad. It's definitely, I guess. I, I would be okay with burning occult books, I just, just so you know. <laughs> just so you know. Um, and that's what they did here. They brought them in and they had this, uh, they burned them and they, they burned them before, it says before all men. And it says the worth of it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now think about that for a minute. A piece of silver in that day represented a day's wage. A day's wage. I don't, I don't know what you make a day, but that times 50,000. Some estimate this would have been in the five to seven million dollars worth of value in today's society of, of what was burned and what was, what was torched that day. So to us, what we learn is that this was not, this was something they invested their lives in, something they invested their finances in. This was a big deal. I think it also tells us there must have been a lot of people going through this. This wasn't two or three people. This was a lot of people that caught a hold of this idea, this fact that we need to lay these things aside in order to fully be used by God. And I love that they don't give the books away or sell them. They destroy them. They, did not, they were not willing to pass them on to somebody else that they may harm. They went, didn't try to profit off of their past sin. Instead, they tried to just get rid of it at all. They traded the volumes that would spread a false teaching and occult practices, and they, they got rid of them so that they could be the vessels of the good news instead. And I want you to look at the result here. It says, so mightily grew the word of God in verse number 20. Mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So after they removed those things from their life, the word of God was mighty in that city. And not only mighty in that city, but mighty in their lives as well. Sometimes we look at this, and I know uh, really a, a focus of the passage is what God is doing in a city and in other people. But I tell you what, the mightiness of the word of God in your own life is absolutely transforming. Absolutely transforming. And so the word of God was mighty. It prevailed. It overcame other things. And they got right with the Lord and and they made a difference in their lives and they were able to eliminate the trappings of their old life. And church, I really believe this with all of my heart that if you want to see the word of God prevail in your life, if you want to see the word of God mighty in you and, and change you and mold you into who God wants you to be, there may be some things that you need to destroy from your old life. There may be some things that you need to remove completely uh, from uh, your life before you got saved and things that you've carried along with you through your walk uh, 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 with Jesus Christ. There may be some things that need to be thrown out 
There may need to be some things that uh, need to be destroyed, that need to be removed, that need to be deleted from your life, from your past, that you're holding on to, that you're keeping with you. And I got to tell you, it's keeping you and it's holding you back from the word of God being used mightily in your life. I have a friend that uh, I was privileged to lead to the Lord probably now, man, it's probably been seven or eight years ago. Great guy. And uh, he got saved and God just began to do a work in his life. And, and we did Bible studies together and we worked together on things. This is, this is long before uh, City Baptist was started. And, and uh, there reached a point in his life where God was doing such a work in him that he said to me one day, he says, you know what? I feel that God wants me to, to give up my business. Now, he had, a, he had his own business. He had started it with a partner. And he's like, you know what? What I'm doing is actually moving people away from God rather than closer to God. And he said this to me, and I never talked about it. We never brought it up. He said, I feel like I need to give this up. And that's what he did. He sold his stake in his company to his partner completely for one cent. The only reason was for the paperwork. He couldn't just give it to him. He had to sell it to him for one penny. And he completely walked away from that life because after a point, this was months into his, into his life with Christ, that God revealed to him. There was other things in his life that connected him to that life that he literally threw away. That was worth a lot of money that he just trashed it, got rid of it because he recognized that he would rather get rid of it than pass it on to somebody else who it might keep from hearing the gospel. And he made that radical change in his life and God has since used him in a very special way and he has grown tremendously and he is somebody that a lot of other Christians look up to now who eight years ago, you'd have been like, whoa, man, what a change that took place. And it's because he was willing to give up some things that were holding him back. Listen, sometimes it's a relationship that you need to let go of. Sometimes it's, it's, it's people in your life that literally keep you from living for God. Because every time you're with them, they try to get you right back to where you were. Right back to where you were. And you say, I love them, they're my friends. I'm not saying they're not your friends and I'm saying you shouldn't love them. But you should maybe limit their, their exposure in your life. If they truly love you and they are your friends, then you should be able to have an open conversation about it and say, listen, stop trying to get me to do stuff that I used to do. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm a Christian. Put it in them, on them, right? So I'm a Christian now. Have a testimony for the Lord. It could, be, it could be people that you're friends with online that every time that you post it, your mind goes back to where you used to be. Whether, it's a, whether it was a point of abuse or a point of, of just sin that you were in, and you're, but you, you know, you're like, well, I don't want them to know that I unfriended them. You know, we're, what a weird mental game that we play, right? You're like, oh, I don't want <laughs> uh, There's so many great ways to mute people now, right? So if they really, if they thought that, man, they can check and see. And, okay, you know, you know what I'm saying. What a game we play. But every time you're, you're scrolling and you see their posts and you see the things that they're involved in, the things that they're doing, it takes you back to that place yourself. And it's holding you back. It's holding you back. There may come a time. There, there may come a time that you will unmute them or whatever, re-add them as a friend when your walk with the Lord is strong. But if you're in the middle of struggling right now and, and you're having a hard time with that, maybe you need to separate from it. We see it with Paul in, in separating from the, uh, the, the Jews there. And we also can see it uh, here with these people who threw these things away and removed them. It could be relationships. It can be simply temptations. It could be things on your devices or on your computer or apps or whatever it may be that you're holding on to that for whatever reason you will not delete and get rid of or, or photos even of things that from your past that you need to maybe remove because in those moments of discouragement and those moments of depression then those moments where you think you're not doing a good job and the moments you feel like a terrible parent you go to that place 
because you know it's there and it feeds uh, a lust or it feeds, a, maybe it just feeds the, the, the discouragement of your heart. It's funny when we're discouraged, we find discouragement <laughs> even more, whether it's people or, or situations, we'll find a way to make ourselves feel worse rather than go to God. And so we got to be aware of those things. And maybe you need to remove that from your life. Listen, you know better than I do what's keeping you from your relationship with God. You know better than I do. I, I, don't, I don't know those things. I don't have some sort of secret insight into all of your lives. You need, you know, unless you told me about it, but you need to, you know, you need to work on those things and, and maybe remove it. You may need to burn something. I think it's a great practice. Remember when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, we never did it myself. Uh, but uh, when I, when I know when Jeanette was a teenager, they would have CD burnings at her, at her youth group. Bring your bad CDs. We're going to torch those things. And uh, they would do that. And they get rid of all that, that music, you know, and they get rid of that stuff or whatever it was that was hindering them, you know. And uh, uh, I've, I've, I've been in situations where, you know, you write down maybe some things that we're struggling with and, and just symbolically, at, by the way, in the city, you got to be careful about fires and all that kind of stuff. I know. Don't get a ticket. But um, maybe there needs to be that expression, you know. I know friends that have been freed from drug addiction and from alcohol and as they poured them or flushed them down toilets as that symbol of I'm done with this. Sometimes a physical expression is a good way to help you remember as well. I don't know what it may be, but what I love here is that these people willingly came. They said, this is holding us back. We're getting rid of this. And then as a result, they were mightily worked in. God and his word worked in them and it prevailed. I would love if the word of God prevailed in my life today. I would love that the word of God prevailed and overcame my, my insecurities. I would love it if the word of God overcame my sin nature, if it overcame the struggles that I have, and if it overcame uh, the discouragement and the, the places that we go in in our minds. I would love it if the word of God prevailed, but maybe I need to remove something to make that happen. Maybe it's just your own pride. We don't want to talk about pride, do we? But it's there. It's real. It's legit in our lives. Whether we want to believe it or not, we have pride and often is one of those things that holds us back. We could, I could list a dozen or 25 other things that hold us back. I think you understand the point here. Maybe there's some things that need to be removed so that the word of God can prevail. Listen, Ephesus was a tough town. Tough town. Man, uh, occult practices, magic uh, stuff, uh, exorcisms, immorality, all of this, but yet what do we see? We see the gospel taking root through a man who's willing to go and just preach the gospel. He found a couple that would listen, who would tell a couple more and a couple more, and we see a great work done in this city. And eventually this city became one of the greatest missionary sending cities that the world has ever known, this city here in Ephesus. And it started with Paul being willing and going with simply the power of of the gospel. Now, Paul's not few the, uh, through the challenges yet. There's a few more to come and we'll cover those as we continue the story. But for today, I just want us to be reminded of the power of the gospel. That's the main thing, the power of the gospel. See, the word of God, the power that changed you here today, whether you're here or in the room next door or you're online, the power of God that changed you is still the same power that can make a difference in somebody else's life today. And we've got to remember that. We have to re remember that we are called as Christians to share that truth and to uh, uh, lead other people to Jesus Christ and then watch God do a, a work and see him make a difference in somebody else's life. I want to be reminded of the power of the gospel, the power to change, and the reminder that we as Christians are to be carriers of that truth today. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook 
or follow us on Instagram at VanCityBaptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.